Galatians chapter 3. Hallelujah. We're, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 13. And we'll read down through a few verses and then skip over and read another one at the end of the chapter. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us. Everybody please notice the first thing he says is something that's already taken place. It doesn't say Christ will redeem you. It doesn't say what God's going to do. It says something that God's already done on your behalf through Jesus. Christ hath, past tense, redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. If you ask most Christians what are they redeemed from, they'll say they're redeemed from sin. But the Bible really says that we're redeemed from the curse of the law. And the curse of the law we're going to find is the result of sin, is the result of spiritual death coming in unto the world. So again, verse 13, Christ hath, past tense, redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The word redeemed has a couple of different meanings. One meaning is to buy back from. Another meaning is to ransom. Uh, another, another meaning is uh, to uh, rescue away from. Those are all meanings of, the, of this Greek word, original Greek word. Christ has redeemed. He has rescued you away from something. He's bought you out of something. He's ransomed you from something. Well, that something is the curse of the law. Now, we know it's talking about the the, uh, sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood and his resurrection and so forth, because it ties it into uh, him hanging on the tree or on the cross. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, past tense, being made, that's already happened, being made a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now notice verse 14 tells you why he did that. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Number one, here's the second reason, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now let's keep reading verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man can disannulleth or add thereto. That's fancy King James English for saying once an agreement is made and confirmed, we might say uh, once it's notarized, once it becomes a matter of public record, you can't change the agreement. You can't go back later on and add something to it. You can't take something away from it. You can't make the original agreement and then once it's confirmed, go back later on and change any of the terms thereof. It is from now on what the original terms were. And Paul's saying if it's that way with covenants or agreements, or contracts that men make between one another, how much more so is it that way with God? Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And then now Paul's going to say, I'm not saying it was made to seeds, meaning all of his children, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is the covenant that God made that can never be changed, that can never be taken away from, was made between God and Abraham and Abraham's seed, not all of his children, but to the one seed that would come through the line of Abraham, and that was Jesus. Verse 29. And if you be Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. Do you know that the the, uh, the blessings that the Jews had under the old covenant don't belong to them anymore? 
unless they make Jesus the Lord of their life, just like you and I can. The Jews don't have any special place with God above the Gentiles. Actually, the Jews are without law toward, the, toward God. Because there is only one law, there is only one covenant that's available today, whether it's Jew or Gentile, for Jews or Gentiles, and that is the covenant that belongs to us through Jesus. Now, there's no question that God's going to do some things for Jesus for uh, the Jews at the end of the age. But that's nothing more than God saying, here's what's going to happen down the road. But, folks, I've got news for you. God tells everybody what's going to happen down the road. So the Jews don't have a special place. For Abraham's sake, God's going to do some things at the end, after the church age is over, to preserve the nation of Israel. But even then, they'll have to come in through Jesus. But what this is saying is, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law for two specific reasons. Number one, so that the blessing of Abraham would be yours. Yours if you're, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. Secondly, that you might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's all they had in the Old Testament. God promised to, the, to several of the prophets that he would send his Spirit, he would make man a new spirit, and then put his Spirit inside of them. But all they could have was a promise until Jesus came. Now, if the Bible says Christ has redeemed you from something, if it was important enough for Jesus to, to purchase something with his blood, we ought to know what he purchased, shouldn't we? Hold your finger here or put something here in your Bible so you can come back quickly to Galatians chapter 3. But turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is Moses speaking to the people just as he's going off the scene. Joshua is going to lead him into the promised land and Moses knows he can't go because he messed up God's type of Jesus. Remember, he was struck the rock the first time and water came out. That was a type of Jesus being smitten by God. But then the second time, he was supposed to speak to the rock, which was a type of the blessings of God coming under the new covenant by faith, the spoken word. But he got upset with people and hit the rock the second time. So God said, you messed things up, so you can't go into the promised land. So this is Moses telling the children of Israel, giving them final instruction before he goes off the scene and before Joshua takes over his place of leadership. I'm going to start reading in verse 15 because Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. So let's see what the curse of the law is. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Let me stop and make a couple of comments. The, um, the covenant God made with Abraham didn't have a law in it. God simply appeared to Abraham and said, follow me, do what I tell you to do, go where I tell you to go, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, meaning children, and I'll make you a blessing. Well, that's exactly what God did. Abraham left his father's land, and he went where God told him to go, the land of Canaan. And God blessed him. God made him rich in silver and cattle and gold. God made him a blessing. He was able to bless not only the other members of his family, but other people as well. And then God gave him children. You know the miraculous birth of Isaac when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. How that he had children, and those children spread out into all the world, and, and uh, uh, the Jewish nation flourished, and so forth. Well... There was no law. There was just a matter of obedience, which is all the law was supposed to identify for the children of Israel after they began to multiply. Moses came along and God gave him a law. But the reason God gave him a law is not because God's changing the rules. The law of Moses was not intended to be anything other than a codification or a structure to the children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, 
the descendants of Abraham because God had made a covenant with Abraham already. So when God gives Moses the law, the law was intended, uh, Paul tells us that the law was to serve one purpose, and that was to show man he couldn't do it on his own. He get, God gave him a law purposely that man was not able to keep, which was supposed to turn him toward God and say, God, I need your help. I can't do this as much as I try and as hard as I want to or as much as I want to. I can't keep all the law. I'm going to need something else. I'm going to need divine help to be able to get to you and to be obedient in every way. That's all the law was supposed to do, to show man that he couldn't do it on his own. But God is saying, when the law first comes on the scene, when Moses is given the law by the hands of God, and he delivers it to the people, he is delivering also the warnings of here's why this is so important. Because if you don't keep this law, all this bad stuff is going to happen. Now, it's not that God wants to, to bring bad things on you. It's not that God wants to... to, uh, to for you to see that you can't keep it and so then bad stuff will happen, God wants you to seek his help in everything you do in life. It's all pointing to Jesus who would be able to keep the law, the only man that ever did, and who would redeem us through the sacrifice of his blood so that we don't have to keep the rules of uh, the laws and the do's and don'ts and all that other kind of stuff. That's why Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law. That's what it was intended to do. But until Jesus came on the scene, it was all about keeping the law, keeping the letter of the law, doing what the Bible says to do or what the law of Moses said to do. And if you don't, these are the bad things that are going to happen. These are the consequences of disobedience. It shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Notice all of them, they could expect all of these curses to be a part of their life. If they didn't obey the law. Verse 16. Cursed shalt thou be in the city and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land. The increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. All of these have specific applications to uh, to farming. They have specific applications to the the, uh, the commerce and the different uh, aspects of, of uh uh, business and, and different things like that that the Jews were involved in. But in a nutshell, it's basically saying no matter where you go, you can't escape the curse. There's not some safe zone you can find. The safe zone is obedience. You're going to be cursed no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, it, who you do it with or how you do it, how you go about it. You're not going to be able to escape the curse. Now notice verse 20. It says, the Lord shall send upon thee cursing vexation and rebuke and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me. Now there's a couple of things that bear um, notice here. Notice it says here in verse 20, the Lord shall send upon thee. There is a, um, um, there's a, a verb or a tense of a verb that's used in the original Hebrew that, that the English, it doesn't translate into English. Now, the King James is a transliteration of the Bible. It's not a translation. It's a transliteration. What that means is the King James English is as close to a word-for-word translation as, as you can get. Uh, that's why some other translations are good. They expand on different words and stuff like that. But, uh, but the King James was intended to be the closest uh, thing possible to the original language, the original Greek and Hebrew, Greek for New Testament, Hebrew language for the Old Testament, by trans, uh, translating one word in the Hebrew for one word in the, in the English. The problem is that doesn't always work. 
because the Hebrew language is much more um, visual than the English language is. And there are different tenses and different uh, uses of verbs and, and grammatical terms and different things like that in the Hebrew that, that, that the English does not correspond to. Now, this word uh, where it says in verse 20, the Lord shall send upon thee vexation. This verb is what's called a jussive verb or a jussive tense of a verb. What that means is the, the best way to explain it is it's a permissive rather than a causative action. So here where it says the Lord shall send upon thee, it literally is saying the Lord shall allow upon thee. But allow is not specifically what that word means from the Hebrew. And so the translators ignored it. Now, the translators also may have thought that God was in the business of doing bad things to people. And so that's why some of the translation turns out the way that it did. For example, there are uh, there are some different uh, verses of Scripture that we could use as examples. And I'll take just a minute and, and show you a few of those. Uh, just to illustrate that you can't always trust the translation. You've got to judge Scripture by Scripture, not just by words. For example, Isaiah 45, verse 7. Let me turn there and so I can read it instead of misquoting it. Isaiah 45, verse 7 says this. I form the light, God speaking first person. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, now, wait a minute. Is God in the business of creating evil? If he is, how can he require of us to resist evil? If God's in the business of creating evil, then us resisting evil would be resisting God, wouldn't it? Yet the Bible says over and over again that we're supposed to resist evil. Now, in this particular case, this word create is a Hebrew word that has two different meanings. One meaning for this word is to create as in make. And that's the, that's the translation that they chose or the, uh, the, the way they translated it. The other meaning for this word is to cut down like you'd cut down a tree. Well, which one should they have used? Translators are bound by two things. The King James translators, this was certainly true for them, but I guess it would be true for any other translators, any other uh, translation that was uh, that was ever developed or, or created. One is the two things the translators are bound by. One is their knowledge of the language. You could well understand if somebody doesn't understand the language that's being translated from, then the end translation into the language that we understand is not going to be very good. I wouldn't be very good translating from Spanish to English because I don't know Spanish. I mean, taco burrito, I got those, but outside of that, I'm, I'm pretty much gone, you know? So my lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of the, of the language would limit me in being able to provide a good translation. Makes sense, right? The second thing when it comes to translations of the Bible, the second thing that translators are bound by after their knowledge of the, of the language itself is their knowledge or understanding of God. Because if somebody has a wrong understanding of God, no matter what the translation is, or in situations where there is an option, like in Isaiah 45, verse 7, where a word can have two different meanings, your understanding of God is going to be, deter- is going to be the thing that determines which way you pick to translate. So it says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Okay, does that mean I make evil or does that mean I cut down evil? You see the point? I think they missed it here because it's against the character and the nature of God to create evil. God said, the Bible says that after God made the earth, after six days, he looked at everything and there was very good and there was no evil in sight. 
Well, the Bible says at the end of those six days, he put an end to everything that he created. So if God created evil, he had to create it in one of the first six days. But there was no evil. There was nothing that could harm man. There was no sign of evil, and God looked at everything and said it was very good. So God considered the earth and the creation of the earth to be very good when there was no evil present. So then at what point would God be making evil? And if God is making peace and also making evil, then that means he's good sometimes and bad other times. And that contradicts what the Bible says. The Bible says God is only good, and it can only be good. It also says there's no variableness in God, neither shadow of turning. That means he can't play both sides of the street. That means he can't be making evil and making peace at the same time. He can't be healing people and making people sick at the same time. There's no variableness in God. He's one way or the other. And if people would understand just some of those basic principles of God and uh, based upon the word, it would clear so many things up. But you can very well see that if somebody just reads this and doesn't understand that the translators were limited by their knowledge of the language and knowledge of God, then some people just take it at face value and say, well, the Bible says God creates evil. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The King James translation says that. But that's the translators, not God. See the point? Look with me over to uh, Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, I think it is. I know your Bible just falls right open to Amos. Mine too. Let's see. I think my Bible has the book of Amos. Yeah, here it is. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people shall not be, and the people be not afraid? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Well, that scripture says that God's creating the evil in cities. That means the murder rate or crime rate or whatever it is that's evil in the city, God's behind it. If we take it at face value. Now, in this case, I've got, uh, I read from a Nelson Bible and uh, there's a little number three by the, and the Lord not have, and well, how does it read? And the Lord hath not done it. Instead, it takes me over to the margin and it says, or, and shall not the Lord do somewhat? Well, which one is it? Those are two entirely different meanings. Which one is it? Well, again, you've got to get back to the original language. You've got to get back to the, to the understanding of God. God's not in the business of doing evil in the city. If God was in the business of doing evil in the city, then he would be unjust to tell you to resist evil in the city or anywhere else. So it's not saying God does it. It's saying God allows evil in the cities. But we also know that if you petition God, pray in faith, pray according to his promises, he'll do something about the evil that we see. Let me give you one more, and that's over in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's one that people use a lot. First Samuel chapter 16, here's where Saul is uh, disobeying God. Verse 14, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Would well, evil spirits come from the Lord? If evil spirits come from the Lord, then we have no business resisting evil spirits. Because they're of him. Now, again, it's a base, it comes down to two things, a knowledge of the language. Translations were based on knowledge of the language and an understanding of God. The King James translators, and, and I can't really throw too many rocks at them. I don't guess anybody had much understanding at the time that these, these, the King James translation came around in 1600 and something. 
I don't know of anybody that had a whole lot of light on the things of God, but they certainly didn't have a proper understanding of God as we know today. So that brings us back to Deuteronomy 28, where it says the Lord shall send upon thee vexation and cursing and rebuke and all that you set your hand to and so forth. It's saying the Lord will allow it, not the Lord will cause it. And again, it's the permissive verb or what's called the jussive verb. Now, you don't have to take my word for that. Look it up, Google it, do whatever you want to do. And you'll find out that, that Hebrew scholars will agree with everything that I'm telling you about that. Now, they may not agree with everything I'm telling you about what God does and doesn't do. Because you've got a lot of Hebrew scholars that still thinks that God's making people sick and doing bad things and bringing evil into people's lives. So you're going to have to judge that based on the Scripture. But you'll find that the permiss- that this, this verb, there is a verb that's translated into the English in the causative sense when it should be in the permissive sense. And that's what these verbs are used or the way that these verbs are used in Deuteronomy 28 when it talks about what God's going to do. God's not the one causing the, these things to happen. God is allowing these things to happen. He's already warned them, don't do this stuff. Obey the word, obey the commandments so that these things don't happen. God's not taking delight in this stuff taking place because he's not the one behind it. But he's saying disobedience puts you in the devil's territory where he'll bring all this stuff into your life. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go back to verse 20. The Lord, here, these are the curses. All these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee, according to verse 15. Verse 20, the Lord shall send or allow upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. Verse 21, the Lord shall make the pestilence, this is the word plague, cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee, literally until it has consumed thee, from off of the land, whether thou goest to possess it. That's a part of the curse of the law. Plagues are part of the curse of the law. Destruction in verse 20 is part of the curse of the law. Plagues are part of the curse of the law in verse 21. Verse 22, the Lord shall smite thee with a consumption. Most Bible scholars agree that that's something related to or similar to tuberculosis. And with a fever... This would include all fevers like scarlet fever, typhoid fever, and so forth. And with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. So all of these things, consumption or tuberculosis and fevers and inflammations and burnings and sword and blast and mildew and so forth uh, are a part of the curse of the law. Uh, let's skip down to verse 27. There's a lot of things we'll skip over. A lot of, most of these verses we'll skip over because we want to just pick out the ones having to do with sickness. Verse 27, the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt. That's very possibly leprosy. And with the emeralds or hemorrhoids and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. So skin diseases and hemorrhoids and incurable conditions related to the skin are a part of the curse of the law. Verse 28, the Lord shall smite thee with blindness. Again, it's allow thee to be smitten with, bl- with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. Well, according to verse 28, all mental conditions Mental deficiencies, insanity, and so forth is a part of the curse of the law. Verse 29, And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. Verse 35, The Lord shall smite thee, or allow thee to be smitten in the knees and in the legs with a sore box that cannot be healed from the sole of thy foot until the top of thy head. This would be eruptive conditions, skin conditions, uh, paralysis, crippling conditions, and so forth. These are all part of the curse of the law, according to verse 35. 
Skip with me over to verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law. Now remember we're redeemed from the curse of the law. So this is the book of the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book. That thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name the Lord thy God. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. This word wonderful means terrible. Awesome in their terribleness. Or terribleness, terrible in their awesomeness. It's not talking about hip hip hooray wonderful. It's talking about something like you've never seen before. And the plagues of thy seed. So he's talking about hereditary conditions. The plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. So he's talking about hereditary conditions. He's talking about terrible, terrible conditions, terrible diseases that pass down from one generation to the next being part of the curse of the law. Verse 60, moreover, he will bring or allow upon thee all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Now, we don't know what the diseases of Egypt were, but they sure did. And whatever they were, were bad enough to where they were afraid of them. Now, you may stop there and say, well, yeah, Pastor Mike, the Bible speaks of different diseases. There are about 14 different ones that are enumerated that we just read through. But you might say, yeah, but I don't see the one that pertains to me. I don't see anything that would would be cancer there. I don't see anything that has to do with blood diseases like leukemia or something like that. What about all of those? Verse 61. Also, every sickness. Everybody say every. Also, every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, will them will the Lord bring upon or allow upon thee until thou be destroyed. So according to verse 61, not only are all the 14 ones that the, the diseases that are specifically identified a part of the curse of the law that we some of them that we made mention of, but also every other sickness and every other disease that's not written down in this list. Those are part of the curse of the law, too. Now, let me remind you again of Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So according to what we just read, Christ has redeemed you from every sickness and every disease known to mankind. Or that shall ever be known to mankind. There's a lot of diseases nowadays that they didn't know about in their day. There may be diseases if Jesus tarries. There may be diseases that we don't know about today that will be affecting people here on the earth. But according to the way that the scripture is written, Christ has redeemed you from every sickness and every disease that will ever be known to man. And that's not something that he's going to do. That's not something you've got to try to get him to do. That's something that's already been done through his sacrifice on the cross. Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. He's already done that. That's what's so silly about people wanting God to do something about their sickness. He's already done everything he's ever going to do. He's already done everything that's necessary to be done concerning sickness and disease. What do people think when, they, when they're praying that? Are they asking Jesus to come back to the cross for just a little bit longer, just for them and their situation? That's not going to happen. He's already paid the price. And he's paid a sufficient price for every sickness and every disease. Now, let me remind you again of verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. We just very, very clearly see that the curse of the law is every sickness and every disease known to man. You have been redeemed. You have been ransomed from. You have been rescued out of. You have been bought out from under every sickness and every disease by the blood of Jesus. Why? Verse 14 gave us two reasons. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. 
Skip back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let's start in verse 1 now. We were talking about the curse of the law, and they start in verse 15 all the way through the end of the chapter. But the first 14 verses of the chapter talk about the blessings of obedience. In other words, these are the blessings of Abraham. Verse 1, and it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently. Those two words are very important, folks. That doesn't mean give a casual glance at. It means live your life by these things. Make it the focus of your life. In other words, we would say be a doer of the word in your life. If thou shalt, it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. Now, things have changed a little bit since that point in time. This belonged to people that were living before Jesus came. From Moses' day until Jesus came and died on the cross. Once Jesus died on the cross, remember what Jesus said? A new commandment, John 13. Verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you. In other words, he's saying this law, this new commandment that I'm going to give unto you is now the law of the new covenant, and it supersedes all the laws of the old covenant. Now, we think of the law of the old covenant or the law of Moses being the Ten Commandments. There were 630 commandments, 630 rules that you couldn't break. And if you broke one of them, you are guilty of breaking every one. It was just like you broke every one of them intentionally. Now we have one law, and that is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The new commandment law is the law of love. So we could insert that in this with the knowledge that we have now. We could say, it shall come to pass that if thou shalt hearken diligently to observe the voice of the Lord, unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do the commandment of love, to observe, to walk in the commandment of love, which I command thee this day, Jesus commanded us in his day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. Verse 2, and all, everybody say all. Notice he didn't say in one or two of these blessings might occur in your life. And all these blessings shall come upon thee and shall overtake thee. Now, what does it mean if something overtakes you? That means it catches you from behind. That means instead of focusing your attention on getting these blessings, we should focus our attention on walking according to the new commandment law of love. And the blessings will catch you as you walk in love. Big difference in chasing after the blessings and making the focus of your life to observe the law of love. And all these blessings, all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee if, if, Thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. In other words, if you obey the word to walk in love. That is the law of the new covenant. Well, what are those blessings? Verse 3, blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Again, these have specific applications. Some people worked in the city, and other people worked in the fields as farmers in in agriculture and stuff like that. But it comes down to the same thing that we said before. You can't escape the blessings no matter where you go. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, that's children, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and in the increase of your kind, and the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be your basket and your store. Your store is your storehouse. In other words, God expects you to have enough left over so that you're not living from paycheck to paycheck. That's a blessing of walking in love. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up. Now, this word cause is a causative verb. 
Here's where God works on your behalf. On the other side, where the curses were concerned, it says God just steps back and allows these things because of your disobedience. In other words, you're really doing this to yourself. God's not doing these curses to you. You're the one that chose to disobey, so God steps back and says, okay, have it your way. But here, this is a different verb. This is not the Lord will allow things to happen. This is the Lord will cause things to happen for those that obey his word. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before your face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Verse 8, the Lord shall command. Please notice the word command. This is a causative action verb. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. Notice storehouses is plural. God didn't expect you just to have one storehouse. He's okay with you having storehouses plural. Now, we don't think of storehouses. In, in their days, they had barns. We don't think of barns so much. We would use uh, retirement accounts or, or, or bank accounts or something like that to, to represent our storehouses. God doesn't have a problem with you having those. I'm glad that excites you. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. By the way, I, I, I don't want to get into a lot of detail about this because I'm, I'm not a financial advisor. But if you don't have a storehouse, there's nothing for God to bless you with. So let me recommend something to you. If you believe this word to be true, make sure you have a storehouse or storehouses so that God can command a blessing upon. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and... He will command the blessing upon you and all that thou settest thine hand unto. That's what and means, isn't it? Not only will he make a command of the blessing upon your storehouses, but he'll also issue the same command for blessing in anything you put your hand to. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now that's an important point, folks, because that comes down to being led by the Holy Ghost. I can't expect to be blessed in whatever God's called you to do. And you might not be able to be ex- to expect to be blessed in whatever God's called me to do. But you can for sure expect to be blessed in whatever he's called you to do. And I can expect to be blessed in whatever God's called me to do. And that's the land that he sends us to. We have a responsibility to obey God and not just, you know, throw a dart on a mountain and say, well, here's where I want to go. Every time I do, my dart lands in Hawaii. But that doesn't work. We have a responsibility to be led of the Spirit. Amen? Verse 9, the Lord shall establish thee. Here's part of the blessings that will come upon you too. The Lord will establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. Verse 9 is talking about fellowship. God will bless you in your fellowship with him through walking in love. Verse 10, and all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of thee. That doesn't mean afraid, run away from. It means have respect unto you because they know somebody is looking out for you. And that somebody is God. Verse 11, and the Lord shall make thee plenteous. Please say the word plenteous. Please notice God is not a cheapskate. This is not nose to the grindstone, barely scraped by. And the Lord shall make thee, again, causative verb, make thee plenteous in goods, 
in the fruit of your body and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give thee. God doesn't have a problem with you having lots or whatever you determine plenteous to mean. I always think of plenteous as meaning lots. Now, I like to think of it this way. God created the whole of the earth. He made all the grass that there was. He made all the trees that there were going to be. He put all the fruit on the trees before he ever made man. There was more grass than Adam could walk barefoot through. There was more fruit than he could ever eat in his lifetime. There was more air than he could ever breathe and more water created than he could ever drink. That's the character and the nature of God. God is not providing for man with an eyedropper. He'll make you plenteous in goods. In the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Verse 12. The Lord shall open, causative verb, the Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. I think the opening the, the heavens has both a natural application because these were primarily farmers. Their crops couldn't grow without rain. The land that God gave them was a land that was pretty much dependent on heaven, the rains of heaven, to produce anything, was then, is now. But I think it also has a spiritual application. I think he's talking about the blessings of God will be upon you that will cause everything that you do to be blessed. So I see both a natural and a spiritual application here. You judge for yourself. The end result is to bless all the work of your hand and thou shalt lend unto many nations and thou shalt not borrow. He does not say it's wrong to borrow. You got some people that get legalistic about things and say you should never borrow money. Well, folks, most of us don't start off being able to pay for everything up front. If it had been, if I had been legalistic about that, I'd never gotten a house. I had to borrow money. Amen. He's not saying that it's wrong to borrow because if it would be wrong to borrow, if it's a sin to borrow, then it would be a sin. You'd be contributing to somebody's sin by lending to them. Wouldn't you? If borrowing is wrong, then lending to somebody puts them in a position of doing wrong or committing sin by borrowing from you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you'll be blessed so that you won't have to borrow. Not that it's wrong to. You'll have enough to where you can lend to somebody else instead of having to borrow. That's what he's saying. Because of the opening the windows of heaven unto you and pouring out his treasure upon you so that everything you put your hand to is blessed. Now, folks, remember, he said in verse 2, all these blessings shall, 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 shall come upon thee. He didn't say they might. He didn't say the odds were in your favor. He said these things will come upon you. So let me encourage you to put your faith on these things because that's what causes them to come. Verse 13. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. God seems to have an, have, God's plan seems to be for his children to come out on top. Not struggle through life praying that Jesus comes quickly. If, here's the condition, once again, if that thou shalt hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, that's the law of love for us, 
And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Now, you may notice a discrepancy between what we talked about in the curse of the law and what the blessings of Abraham are. Did you notice there's not one word about healing in those first 14 verses of Deuteronomy 28? If the curses of the law include every sickness and every disease known to man, and that's what Jesus redeemed us from, then why is there no mention of healing in the blessings of Abraham? Because God's plan is not for you to get sick and then get healed. God's plan is for you to live free from sickness, to walk in divine health, in other words. So if we walk in divine health, healing is not an issue because as children of God, doers of the word, Walker, the people that walk in love according to the commandments of God, we are a sickness-free zone. God expects your life to be free from sickness and disease. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be tempted. That doesn't mean sickness won't try to come on and take hold of you. But that means you and I, because of our obedience to the word, because we're doers of the word, because we know that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, we can chase away any sickness and disease that comes. Even if it lingers on, we can still refuse to receive it. There's a big difference in being tempted with sickness and taking hold of it. Big difference. Are you out there? Remember Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us, past tense, has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means from every sickness and every disease being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Why did he do that? Verse 14. So that the blessing, all these blessings, could come upon you as a Gentile because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. That's the first reason that verse 14 says God did this or Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. The second reason is in the last part of verse 14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you know what that means? Well, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have received the Holy Spirit? Whether filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with other tongues or you've received the Holy Spirit in salvation, doesn't matter. The fact that the Holy Spirit lives and resides in you in whatever measure you've received him, then that's by your choice too. But in whatever measure you've received him, the fact that the Holy Spirit lives and abides in your spirit is proof that you're redeemed from the curse of the law. Jesus said this. He was talking to his disciples Uh, after the Jews had uh, uh, rejected him, Jesus said, but I'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And then he started talking about the Holy Spirit would be the one that would be the evidence of judgment of the, the judgment of the world. He's not talking about judgment of mankind. He's talking about the judgment against spiritual death that came into the earth when Adam and Eve transgressed the commandment of God. He's saying very simply this, the presence of the Holy Ghost here in us And present upon the earth is proof that Jesus paid the price to destroy the works of the devil. I don't think we take advantage or at least full advantage of that. We need to recognize that every time we speak in tongues, and it should be easy for people that are spirit-filled, should be a piece of cake for people that are spirit-filled. Because every time you speak in tongues, it's proof that you've been redeemed from all of these curses. Now, The curses that we didn't read, that we didn't take time to read, the verses that were left out were verses having to do with curses, financial uh, curses and stuff like that because of disobedience, uh, disobedience to the word or disobedience to the commandments. 
So in a nutshell, the curse of the law is you're cursed with every sickness and every disease. You're cursed with everything you put your hand to will fail. And the, the heavens will be like brass over your head and, it, and the, 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 your ground will be as dust, hard as a brick and stuff like that. It won't produce anything for you. You will scrape by by the skin of your nose all the days of your life until you're destroyed. That's what Jesus redeemed you from. And the fact that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith shows us that we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. It's the proof that you're redeemed from every sickness and every disease and redeemed from every curse, financial physical, social, and whatever other areas there are. Now, let me tell you a story. You've heard me talk about, and, and hopefully you've read some of the, uh, the the little books by Dr. Lillian Yeomans. Let me tell you, the, the, for those of you that don't know who she was, let me, uh, let me give you a real short summary of, of her life. Her father was medical doctor in Chicago back, what, around the turn of the century, I guess it would have been, uh, early 1900s. When I say turn of the century, I mean last century, 1900s. And as a result, she followed him into medicine, became a very successful doctor. And as a result, she was in great demand and putting in a lot of hours. And and so her body got run down. She was tired. She was overworked and so forth. So she started prescribing morphine to herself just kind of as a pick-me-up. Well, she got hooked. And she couldn't beat it. She couldn't get off of it. She did everything she could. She went to to all of her medical doctor friends to try to find some way to to beat this thing. And she just couldn't kick it. It started destroying every aspect of her life. Everybody realized this is not a drug user. She just got hooked trying to to use it for the benefit of, you know, whatever she needed to keep going and, and keep her practice going and things like that. And so it wasn't a stigma against her necessarily, but everybody knew what the situation was. It was destroying her life. Her father had been a very wealthy and very successful doctor. So there's a lot of family money involved. And so it wasn't like she wound up on the streets or anything like that, but she realized that medical science had no hope for her. So she said to herself, my only hope is God. I'm going to find out from the Bible if God will do anything to help me. Well, that led her to an exhaustive study. She came to realize that healing belonged to her because of the work of Jesus. She believed God and kicked this thing. Got off the morphine, redeemed her life. God redeemed her life from destruction. She wound up, you know, back even better than she was before. Well, now she's kind of in a dilemma because she doesn't want to go back to practice medicine. She wants to tell people about Jesus and about how he'll redeem their lives from destruction too. So her sister, by this time her father had had passed away, both she and her sister were career women. Her sister was uh, was not a medical doctor, but she had a, a successful career too. And she saw what had happened to Dr. Yeomans. And so they decided that what they would do is they would continue to live in their, their father's mansion. He had left them the house. Uh, her mother was dead, uh, and so it's just uh, the two girls, two daughters. So they decided they would use this mansion as a place to show people God's goodness to heal. Now, she never, ever, in any of her writings, ever claimed to have some special call to the ministry. Nor in her writings does she ever speak more than just casually about ever laying hands on people. But they developed this uh, this uh, mansion that they had been left by their father, had something like uh, 18 rooms or something like that, 18 bedrooms that they turned into to sick rooms for people. 
and the, the medical community, because they knew Dr. Yeomans, knew her story, knew that there was nothing that medical science could do for her, but yet now here she is, uh, her life has turned around, she's kicked this thing in, in such a way that the people had said, you know, other medical doctors had said, there's no way you're ever going to get off this. You can try to d- diminish the, the dosage and, and see if you can make that work for you, but, but there's, you'll be hooked on this for the rest of your life. They saw that the, the change that had taken place and that she was free. And so they had great respect for her, even though not all of them bought into the fact that it was God, the power of God and Jesus and so forth. But the, but the medical community in, in the Chicago area recognized something changed her. She did what we couldn't do for her. She did what we never thought she would be able to do. And so when they would get people that, that they couldn't do anything more for, they would recommend Dr. Yeoman's healing rooms or, or the, her home that uh, she and her sister uh, used as a, as a place where they could get help. And as a result, they developed a waiting list that was several years long. Now, here's the way that they would minister. They, they wound up with, uh, with cases, incurable conditions that were healed, critical conditions, people at the point of death that were raised up and healed and restored and so forth. They had situation after situation. They didn't get everybody healed. Not everybody would allow them to, and you'll understand when I tell you what they did. Not everybody uh, received their healing, and there were some people that were so critical, too far gone when they came to them that they couldn't do anything for. But for the vast majority of the cases that came to them, they got them healed. And here's the one and only way that they ever ministered to people. Every morning and every night when they would bring them food, they would sit down with them. They had a schedule so that they rotated different times of the day. But twice a day for every patient, every person that was in these one of their, their bedrooms that they turned into this uh, healing home, twice a day they would read Galatians 3 and Deuteronomy 28 to them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. They'd read the whole third chapter of Galatians. They'd read the whole 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. Their testimony, Dr. Yeoman's testimony, that she gave to the medical association in Chicago was that usually after two to three weeks, it would dawn on the people that they're reading to that they've been redeemed by something that Jesus has already done for them. And if they weren't already saved, they'd get them saved and then the healing would manifest. That's the only way they ever ministered. There's no record. It may have happened and we just don't know it, but there's no record. They never gave any any attention to laying hands on people. They never claimed to have a special anointing. They never anointed anybody with oil, according to their, their records. They did this one thing every day for the period of time that they were there. They would read Galatians 3 and Deuteronomy 28 twice a day. And they got some of the most phenomenal cases of healing that we have record of in church history. Nothing was too hard for God. Cases the doctors said, we can't do anything for you. If it was me, here's why I'd go. Those very same people would go back to the doctors. The doctors would check them out. The doctors would correspond back and forth with Dr. Yeomans and say, we don't understand this. What did you do? We read Galatians 3 and Deuteronomy 28 to them. Yeah, okay, but what did you do? We read Galatians 3 and Deuteronomy 28 to them. 
Okay, I get that. I understand you're ministering to their spirits and you're trying to get them saved and so forth. But what did you do for their condition? We read Galatians 3 and Deuteronomy 28. Now, folks, here's the reality. Psalm 119, I think it's verse 130, says the entrance of thy word giveth light. The first time you read Galatians 3, 13, it doesn't dawn on your spirit what's really being said. You may agree mentally, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and Jesus died on the cross for my sickness just as much as he died on the cross for my sin. You may understand that mentally. But mental faith or mental agreement, what some people call mental assent, is not heart faith. And heart faith is what receives from God, not mental assent, not mental agreement. But the more you see God's word, the more you hear God's word, the more you speak God's word to yourself. Day after day, maybe week after week. Sooner or later, the light will come on on the inside. And the scriptures that you saw before, now you'll see like you've never seen them before, like it's the first time. It'll be like, wait a minute. Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. Maybe the very thing you've been reading, maybe the very same thing you've been seeing, maybe the very same thing you've been saying for a long time. But eventually, and whether you know it or not, that's meditation. You're meditating in the Word by reading it over and over and saying it over and over. But don't tell anybody that because meditating freaks people out. So let's just say read it and say it. But eventually, it will drop down on the inside of you. I don't know if that's a good way to say it, but I don't know any other way to say it. It becomes alive on the inside of you and not just something that your, your mind says, yeah, here's what the Bible says. They're not just words on a page anymore. They become real on the inside. And when they become real on the inside, there is no power in hell that can stop the reality of that promise being yours. And that's what they did day after day after day after day after day with thousands of people over about a 30-year period of time. Christ has redeemed you. From the curse of the law. Deuteronomy 28 says. Every sickness and every disease known to man. Is a part of the curse of the law. So therefore Christ has redeemed you. From every sickness and every disease. If that's not real to you yet. If that doesn't make you jump up and down. Then let me encourage you. To stay with those verses of scripture. Speak them. Read them. Say them to yourself. Over and over and over again. I'll challenge you that if you'll do the same thing that Dr. Yeomans did with her patience, so to speak. You read through it twice a day and stick with it until it becomes real on the inside of you. I don't care how serious. I don't care how severe. I don't care what the doctors have told you about your situation. I don't care who said what. I'll guarantee you. Healing will dominate your body. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. That your word is true. Thank you that Christ has redeemed us. Past tense has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Thank you father that you did that. So that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us as Gentiles. Since we are Christ. We are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Therefore father we've been redeemed from every sickness and every disease known to mankind. Thank you father. 
that as we meditate on that, as we read your word, as we speak your word, as we focus our attention on your word rather than our condition, thank you that that entrance, the entrance of those words give light to our spirits, cause us to realize the truth thereof and brings healing into our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Dr. Yeoman's sister was a songwriter. She'd write little songs. One of the songs she wrote about this is, it goes like this, and forgive the way it sounds, sounds better, but somebody that can sing, sings it. But it goes like this. I'm not under the curse. I'm not under the curse. For Jesus has set me free. For sickness I've health, and for poverty wealth. Since Christ has ransomed me, I'm not under the curse. I'm not under the curse. For Jesus has set me free. For sickness I've health and for poverty wealth. Since Christ has ransomed me. Their house would be filled with people singing that day after day after day after day. Because it was a song that they gave Dr. Yeoman's sister by the Spirit. It was given to her by the Spirit of God. And so it was something that people would get a hold of. They would latch hold of. That song was going constantly throughout their house as people would start to get the light of Christ having redeemed them from the curse of the law. Amen? Amen. Well, let's all stand together. Say this after me. Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. The curse of the law... Includes every sickness and every disease known to mankind. Therefore, Christ has redeemed me from every sickness and every disease known to man. The blessing of Abraham, the blessing of healing, the blessing of health, the blessing of success. And prosperity is mine because Christ has ransomed me. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.